Good morning. If you have a Bible, you can uh, get it opened up to Ephesians chapter 6, Ephesians 6 this morning. And while you're turning there, I want to give you an update. Uh, last week, we informed you we were having a congregational meeting. I want to back up and give you a little bit of backstory if you're a guest with us this morning. Uh, we're an independent Christian church uh, here at New Hope, meaning this church body is led by uh, our elders, and our elders are chosen uh, from our church family. And so as the elders lead the church, there's a plurality of leadership. What that means is, just for your understanding, I, as the preaching minister here, am not the uh, main leader. I am a part of a team of leadership here at the church. And we brought to this congregation um, a few months ago uh, the desire that we had uh, to expand our building, our physical building here, because of the growth that was taking place Uh, in the church family. And we thought we needed to make a little bit of breathing room to then not build any more onto the church building, but begin to plant independent Christian churches. So that's the vision that we've got for the future. And uh, part of that was we needed to go ahead and expand our physical building here um, in the immediate future so that we could get to pursuing the rest of that vision. And so we brought to the congregation um, our desire to build a new worship center. Um, a medium-sized worship center that would allow us to have a little bit of space here. We then uh, cast that vision, then we followed it up with two Q&A sessions where you could come and ask any questions that you wanted, and it culminated last Sunday in a congregational meeting where the congregation was going to vote on whether or not we move forward. Uh, This wasn't something we said, we're doing it. It was, hey, are we doing this church family? And so the elders had a threshold. If it was 90% or higher, we felt that that was a good representation to move forward as a church family and to go ahead and expand the building. If it was between 70 and 90%, we needed to revisit this and have more conversations with the church family. Anything under 70%, we viewed as, hey, it's not time. Uh, So we should not move forward with these plans. We had more people show up for the congregational meeting than in my time here at New Hope. And we have more people vote on this decision than in any other decision that I've been a part of in the almost 15 years that I've been here at New Hope. And 99% of the church family voted yes uh, to move forward. And so uh, it is the decision of the congregation to move forward and expand the physical building. A couple things. What you'll see um, first is you'll see some movement begin to take place uh, as decisions are continuing to be made. Uh, So in the immediate future, our hope is to expand the parking lot. Uh, which this and third service said, amen. Uh, You'll be able to get in and out of this place a little bit. So we're hoping to temporarily expand the parking lot. Then you'll begin to see uh, some plans being made, some physical things moving around to prepare for breaking ground sometime uh, in the early to mid part of next year. Um, There's also a financial component. And one of our desires is complete and total transparency. So we don't hide anything financially at this church. And so uh, you need to know I'm not a part of that. Um, I'm not a part of anything when it comes to the finances. I don't know what anyone gives. I don't track it. I don't, I'm not told about it. And that's an on-purpose thing. As the preacher here at the church, I don't want to be part of that. But someone needs to be. Um, as you can understand, uh, the accounting side of the church, we do have leadership that does participate in that. And one of the things that we will need is a commitment from the church to be able to fund this project moving forward. And so there'll be a day where we have a commitment, where we ask uh, the church family to say, hey, for the next two years above our tithe, we're willing to give this much toward this project. Uh, When that takes place, it can be anonymous. We're not asking for your identity and a pledge, and we're going to call you and harass. That's not how we operate around here. It's just saying, getting a feel for the church family, are we able to do this moving forward? And so putting those two things on your radar, 
The third thing is this. Um, we're not done with Q&A. If you have questions and you want to know more information, we genuinely want to be transparent. And so just come and catch one of us. You can email us, set up a time to come in and meet with the leadership. We're not hiding anything about this. If you want more information, you can have that information. Just ask. Okay, it's the uncomfortable update. Let's go ahead and pray, and uh, we'll jump in this morning. Father, thank you for being with us this morning. God, thank you that when we wake up, you're there, and when we lie down, you're there. Wherever we go, you're with us. And God, thank you also for the many gifts that you've given to us with your grace. You've given us so many gifts in our lives, wonderful relationships, great experiences, a church family. And perhaps one of the greatest gifts you've given us is your word. You've given us your wisdom, your insight, your desire, your command for how we are to live, and we are grateful for it. As we turn our attention to your word, Father, we ask that we would gain just that, your wisdom, discernment, and instruction for our lives. And we ask you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Early on in the book of Genesis, one of the things that you pick up when you begin reading through your Bible is the relationship between God and his people. As a matter of fact, right off the bat, one of the cool things that you get, uh, you can uh, draw from the passage is from the moment that God placed Adam and Eve in the garden, he had a personal relationship with them. We learn that he would come down into the garden at the end of every day and he would walk with them. He would spend time with them. He would talk to them. He would listen to them. He would speak to them. So imagine what that was like just for a moment. We have a hard time doing that. But imagine what it was like at the end of every day, God would come and spend time with them. And he would have this safe, confident, enjoyable relationship with his creation. It was an incredible experience for Adam and for Eve. And so right off the bat, in the biblical narrative, we learn this important principle about the God who created everything. And it is that he wants to spend time with us. Now, theologically, notice I said want. He doesn't need us but he does desire to be with us. He wants to spend time with us. And you learn this other principle that our relationship with him is initiated by him, not us. He made the first move. He desired to be with us. Notice Adam and Eve aren't having to go around the garden searching for God. God comes to them and he spends time with them. So as much as we desire to know God and to walk with God and to talk with God, he desires to know us and walk with us and talk with us even more. Now, you get to Genesis chapter 3, and that story takes this turn. Adam and Eve, they sin. They make a decision that is in a direct rebellion to what God has called them to do. They make a decision that would put a wedge between the relationship that they have with God, and God shows up for his nightly walk with them, the evening stroll with Adam and Eve, and he's looking for them. He knows where they are, but at the time, they had been aware of their nakedness, they become aware of their sin and the fact that they are not like God anymore and they were hiding behind some bushes. And God comes to meet with them and they're hiding from him. And you notice in the story that after he comes, he doesn't walk away from them, he doesn't abandon them, he seeks them out. And he has this like parent-child relationship with them. And any parent in the room will tell you as your kids grow, there are moments where you have to have hard conversations with them. Things that they can't see and don't understand. Consequences that they have for their actions. And so there is that interaction between God and Adam and Eve where he has to have a hard conversation with them because of the bad choice that they made. And yet he still does not push them away. He pursues them and he initiates with his grace the beginning steps that would be a long journey toward reconciling God and his people. 
He clothes them. He gives them ways to continue to connect him despite their poor choices. He wants to be with them because God is not like us. He's different than us. Fast forward to your New Testament and it becomes, we begin to see the beginning steps of the culmination of that reconciliation that God started with his people. And you see it in Jesus. The the New Testament teaches us that God sends Jesus and because of what Jesus has done, we can now be reconciled to God. That we can now have confidence when we approach him, that we can spend time with him, that we can see through the life, death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus just how much God loves us and wants to be with us. You begin to see that, and then we learn that he sends his Holy Spirit to live inside of us. And so now the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us. And Ephesians chapter 2 says there's this one spirit that God uses and he puts the spirit inside of us. Our sins are forgiven and we're connected to Jesus because of our faith in what he has done. And Paul begins to explain just how deep that relationship is when he writes to the church in Rome. Romans chapter 8, here's how he describes the relationship that happens for us because of God's spirit. For those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. That because of what Jesus did and because the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us, we are adopted into a relationship, a restored relationship with God. He wants to be with us. In the same way, a good parent wants to be with their children. And I've talked about my kids a lot from this stage, and I will continue to talk about it because it's important. If the deep love, when I look at my kids, the love that I have for my children, if that feeling is just a sliver of an understanding of the way that God feels when he looks at me in Jesus because of what we just read in Romans 8, It is an unbelievably life-changing truth that the God of the universe wants to adopt you as his child so he can spend time with you. It changes everything. Now, why is this important? We've been in this long sermon series through the book of Ephesians. In fact, we've been in that series all year. It's the way that we approach preaching here at the church. We want to walk through God's word because we feel like that's what you need in your life. As you leave this place and scatter, you need to be centered on the word of God. As this letter that we've been studying is coming to a close, we're going to finish it today and next Sunday. We'll close out Ephesians. As we close out this letter that Paul's been writing, Paul brings to the attention of his readers something he thinks is vitally important. And we've spent a couple weeks breaking it down. One is you have a very real enemy. That you can live your life kind of nonchalant, like you're... Faith is just kind of this hobby you attach to your side, and it's just kind of this thing, gets you into certain social clubs, and you can do that, and that's exactly what this enemy, who's a master deceiver, wants you to do, so he can devour and destroy your life. We looked at what the Bible says about our enemy and how badly he wants you to suffer and for your life to be horrible, because in doing so, he's getting back at God. So he wants nothing more than for you to experience pain and suffering. He hates you. But at the same time in, Rome, or in Ephesians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul tells us that God, knowing that real enemy that you're up against, gave you a way to stand firm against the attack of the enemy and even fight back. And he calls it the full armor of God. And last week we broke down that armor, what it means for us to have the armor of God in this battle that we're up against. And now Paul shifts and says, 
And what's vitally important to your understanding of your enemy and your ability to engage in battle with the enemy with the armor of God is your understanding of what prayer is. And so in this one verse we're going to look at today, Paul gives us a lot of insight into the importance of prayer when it comes to the spiritual battle that we're in, but in our life with God in general. Would you stand with me for the reading of Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18? Paul says these words, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. This is God's word. You can be seated. Now, in your Bible, verse 18 might start a new paragraph and begin pretty easily for you to be a, see verse 18. And Paul's talking about something different. And he talked about the armor of God. And now he's talking about prayer. But there is this connector in the original language. There's an imperative to pray that's connected to the previous passage in verse 17 in particular, where it's not so much that Paul is saying, oh, and also you need to pray. But what he is saying is, as you put on the armor of God, do so while praying. So verse 17, take that helmet of salvation. And when you're putting on the helmet of, so put on the helmet of salvation while praying. So all of these things that you're doing, you're praying, you're talking to God, you're enjoying relationship with God. You're doing this while you're praying. And Paul gives us a little bit of insight. And when you pray, pray with all kinds of requests, all kinds of things that you bring to God. Nothing's off the table. You should be talking to God about everything that you can have a relationship with him where you're just openly talking to him all the time. Read this week about a, a young mom who took her children on a tour of New York City. And if you've been to New York City, it can be overwhelming for families that are not from New York City, right? It's quite a bit going on. The city's a lot of movement, the, so many people, the buildings and everything. And so they're going on this tour. And this mom with her children, they get to this incredible cathedral. And if you've been there, St. Patrick's Cathedral is this big, beautiful building. And they decide to go on this tour and they go inside and they look around and the kids are kind of getting a little distracted and they're blown away by the beauty of the inside of this church building. And they bring their attention to the candles that are at the front of the building. And the mom begins to explain, hey, these are candles. So if you, you, you would light this candle and you would say a prayer, but it's not a birthday candle. You're just lighting a candle and you're saying a prayer for somebody and you're not asking like you would like a wish. You're just asking for God's blessing. And so one by one, the kids light a candle and they say this prayer they regroup as a family. They walk outside. And the mom asks this question, a good question to ask. Hey, do you have any questions at all about that experience when you were just praying? And right before they walk out the front doors of the cathedral, the little five-year-old boy, true story, says, no questions, but if there's a pony outside, it's mine. <laughs> and I, I love that. I love it. Five years old, five years old, and that's the prayer, Right? And you look at it and you're like, oh, that's so funny, right? Like, but it's a great place to start. He's just talking to God. God, I want a pony. And sure, this five-year-old, he's going to mature. He's going to grow up and his prayers will change and they'll morph. And he won't be asking for ponies when he's 25 as he grows and he's changed. And things are different for him. But starting off just being honest with where you're at. God, here's what's on my heart right now. I want a pony. God will take that and he'll begin to morph it and change it. There's this beauty, so much depth in the words of Jesus. We read them like a textbook way too often when we should sit and just meditate on how incredible his teaching was. In Matthew 18, he has this incredible teaching that's so relevant to every season of our life. When he says these words, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
If you just meditate on it, like think about how deep that is. Think about your life. And if you're anything like me, if you're honest about it, you'd say, yeah, man, over the years, I've lost that childlike innocence, that trust that just, man, God loves me where I'm at, and I have bogged it down with a lot of Bible study and theology, which aren't bad things. But there are times when we begin to study and we begin to see the bigness of God that we lose sight of the personal nature of God. And what happens when we do that oftentimes in my experience is I begin to think, well, God is so big. He has so many other things to do. He doesn't care about this little request that I have. Or God has so many other things. Or this is such an immature thing for me to bring to God. I need to get my act together. I need to process these thoughts before I begin praying about these things. Right? And we, we begin to cloud our mind with instead of understanding that God wants to be with us. And yet the, the thing that Paul's trying to get across here is the very thing that God wants is your heart. He doesn't want you to go clean up everything and get it all. He wants to connect with you right now where you're at, even if you're asking for a pony. I mean, think about this as a parent. Aren't you glad, parents, when your kids come to you and want to talk to you? I mean, sometimes when they come to you and they are sharing something that's not, and you're thinking in your head, that's the most foolish thing. Oh, you have so much to learn. Or you'll think about something that your kids bring to you and you'll think to yourself, that's our fault. Like, they, where did we mess up, right? And you start to like question like, oh no. Other times they come to you and you're blown away and you're thinking, how in the world? And you look around and you're like, they are so smart and that's not our fault. Like, how did they learn that? And they bring requests to you and you're talking to them. And yet at the end of the day, whether it's foolish or it blows your mind, one of the things that you're most excited about is just the fact that they're talking to you, that they're opening up to you, that they feel safe, that they desire to have these communications with you. And it's your responsibility to create that kind of a culture. Sure. But when it works and they want to talk, it's unbelievable. I'm in an interesting season as a parent. My kids are, my oldest is in high school now. And uh, one of the things that I've learned as a pastor and a parent, you're balancing your schedule. It's, it's hard because my approach to ministry, my desire for ministry is to be accessible to people. I love spending time with people. And I feel like that's what ministry is. You, you spend time with and you love the people in the congregation. But that creates a little bit of conflict at time. I don't like giving up my evenings because as much as I love you all, <laughs> I pick my family. Like they have to come first. And so my evenings, but now my son's in high school and he right now doesn't drive himself to high school. He needs to be at basketball practice at 6 a.m. And that's usually the time that I say, hey, I can meet you at 6 a.m. if you want to have breakfast with people. But now he needs to be there. And one of my favorite things in the world is the 20 minute car ride in the morning with just me and him. And how he opens up and we talk. We have these great conversations. It's so good. This is what Paul's trying to get across. Like, God wants to spend time with you. Ask him for anything. There's nothing off limits. He just wants to talk to you. Because he knows that this is an important thing for you to understand. This relationship you have with him is your life source. As you put on the armor, you do so while in constant communication with God. Because you understand more than anything else. He just wants to spend time with you. And he'll take whatever you're bringing to the table. And he'll shape it and mold it and mature it. And it'll change over time. But it has to start somewhere. J.I. Packer, in his famous work, uh, Knowing God, described it this way. Knowing God is a matter of personal dealing. Knowing God is more than knowing just about him. It's a matter of dealing with him as he opens up to you and being dealt with by him. Friends open their hearts to each other by what they say and do. We must not lose sight of the fact that knowing God is an emotional relationship as well as an intellectual and volitional one. And could not indeed be a deep relationship between persons if it were not so.
See, it is one thing for Christians to know a lot about God and to be able to answer questions, trivia questions about the Bible and about theology. Those are good things. It's another thing to memorize scripture and think about what the Bible teaches. That's a good thing. But if you do all of those things and miss out on knowing God, if those things don't propel you into a more intimate relationship with him, you're missing the point. He wants to know you. Tim Keller describes prayer beautifully when he says this, prayer is continuing a conversation that God has started through his word and his grace. So he's speaking to you through his word and through the grace that he displays to you, relationships, resources, all those other things God has given to you to get you to know him better, which eventually becomes a full encounter with him. Let me read that again. Prayer is continuing a conversation that God has started with you through his word and his grace, which eventually becomes a full encounter with him. And this is what Paul wants us to understand. Putting on the armor of God is not just about checking things off a list so that you can fight against an enemy. It's about putting on the armor while you're in relationship with God so that armor becomes even stronger because he knows that your enemy is just waiting for you. And this is why he gives us a caution. He says, as you put on the armor, as you're in a constant relationship with God, one author said it this way, prayer is just inviting God to be a part of the everyday stuff of your life. He's just a part of everything you do. He's included in all of it. And that relationship grows and gets stronger. And he gives us this caution. With that in mind, he says, be alert. With that in mind, understanding that that's how prayer works. Be alert. Literally translated means be on the watch. It screams of the garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus gives his disciples instructions, I'm going over here to pray, don't fall asleep. Stay awake, be alert, so you don't miss out on what's going on here. Another example is Luke chapter nine. In Luke chapter nine, uh, uh, Jesus invites three of his closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, up on the top of this mountain. And when they get on the top of the mountain, Jesus begins, his clothes begin to radiate. His face begins to kind of glow. All of a sudden, he's transfigured. We call it the mountain transfigured. He's transfigured. And what that means is the curtains pulled back for these three disciples. These three mere human disciples have an opportunity to get to see the spiritual world that's going on all around them. They get to see some of Jesus's divinity, not only the humanity that they've been exposed to. And it's an incredible scene. It's a powerful moment. And when you turn around, when the camera pans, if you will, back to Peter, James, and John, what are they doing? They're sleeping. Like, how in the world are you sleeping in one of the most powerful moments in all of human history? How are you sleeping through this? This moment where you get to see Jesus and at least a sliver of his divinity and you're sleeping through it. How do you do that? And it's easy for us to look at that and think, I would never sleep through a moment like that. Oh, it would be so awesome to be on that mountain. And yet... The New Testament teaches us that you have what they didn't have at that time. You have the Spirit of God living inside of you. And because of that, you have an invitation to enter the throne room with confidence every day. See, we sleep through that big moment all the time. How often is it that you say, I'm going to spend some time with God tonight only to have the calendar take your attention away? That ball game comes on that's just so close you've got to catch the end of it. Right? That TV show that you're watching. Man, I don't want to miss this episode. Or we get pulled into the vortex, the pit, the detrimental, horrible pit. I hope you see how I feel about this, of social media. (laughs) And we sit there with our screens above our heads as we lay in bed and we just scroll. We get so tired, we put the phone down, set the alarm, 
doze off. Oh, I forgot to spend time with God today. See, it's easy to point the finger at them for falling asleep in important moments, and yet we do it all the time. You go back to Luke 9, though, and what's fascinating is that Jesus doesn't look at them and say, are you kidding me? Like, get down, send the next three up. We got 12. There's got to be a round of three that you, like, we'll do, we'll run this thing back. Let me, I'll start glowing again and I'll have another three and they won't fall asleep and they'll be my favorite. It doesn't, he doesn't do that. He doesn't kick them off the mountain. They kind of come to, and all of a sudden they have these ideas and they start talking and the voice of God comes and says, this is my son, listen to him. In other words, Peter, stop talking. Stop talking, Peter. Just listen to Jesus. They come down off the mountain and Jesus doesn't abandon them. He doesn't walk away from them, much like the garden. He comes to them and he continues to walk with them and work with them. And even though they made a mistake, he's going to continue to work with them and continue to build on that relationship with them. You see, the command in in Ephesians 6.18 to stay alert is not so that we would live in fear of messing up. That's not it. It's so that we would constantly be aware of the invitation to enter into, once again, this ongoing conversation that God has invited us into and made possible by the work of his spirit. He wants them to stay alert. Stay alert to the fact that God always wants to spend time with you, always. He wants you to invite him into everything that you're doing, and he took the initiative to make it possible. He loves spending time with you. Because if you lose sight of that, you make your faith about what you do instead of this relationship that you have with him. And you begin to get burned out or distracted. And all of a sudden you put your guard down. And he knows that the moment you put your guard down, you have an enemy who's waiting for you to put your guard down because you're no longer intimately connected to your heavenly father. You've lost sight of the fact that you were adopted into sonship with him. So instead of that, you put your guard down and all of a sudden the enemy starts to come and you're not aware of what he's doing. Let me illustrate it for you this way. This is a picture here of Kermit Tyler. Many of you may not recognize that name, but this is a man who lived with deep regret for most of his adult years, carried this regret. When you look up his story, you realize that the regret he carried was not entirely his fault. It was misplaced regret, really. And the mistake that he made, that shouldn't be on his shoulders. And yet he carried this regret most of his adult life because the decision that he made played part in the loss of 2,400 fellow soldiers. See, Kermit Tyler was a platoon leader in the U.S. Air Force's 78th Pursuit Squadron on Pearl Harbor. See, for many of us, December the 7th is a date where we remember history and we read about history. But for him, it was a constant reminder of this regret that he carried with him. Just a few days before that attack, before December the 7th, Kermit Tyler was trained on this brand new state-of-the-art radar system that was put in place on Pearl Harbor. And he was only given one day worth of training to learn how to operate that radar system. And then he was put in a position of command, meaning as everybody else was operating the radar system, when something came across the radar, it was up to him after one day of training to make a decision on what we should do because of what we see on that radar system. So December the 6th, his shift that led into December the 7th started like any other shift for him. And as he was kind of coming close to a close, he got a call overnight from San Francisco that said, hey, we're sending some bomber planes to you to be stationed at Pearl Harbor, so you can be expecting those tomorrow morning. And so 12 bomber planes coming from San Francisco. And so the next day, um, he's expecting this. He gets a call from the radar station on the north end of Oahu, and they say, hey, this gigantic blip just came onto the radar. And Kermit Tyler had no reason to believe it wasn't his 12 bomber planes. And so he said these regrettable words, no need to worry about it. A little while later, he clocked out 
Right at 7 o'clock and 55 minutes after he clocked out, history changed forever. So he had no reason to, to think it wasn't something important. So he didn't even check the radar. He didn't even double check what was going on. He didn't even look at all of the details. He just put his guard down in a way. And he said, no need to worry about it. No big deal. And while 55 minutes between when he clocked out and when that first Japanese bomb was dropped at Pearl Harbor would not have prevented the war from happening, it would have given ample time to prepare for an attack, to be alert, to be aware. See, the Apostle Paul and all of your Bible writers are telling you, stay alert because they know that the enemy's attack is so deceitful, it will appear like just a blip on the radar, no big deal, and you are tempted to say, "Ah, don't worry about that, that's not that big of a deal, and you're right where the enemy wants you to be. And Paul says one of the most important ways for you to stay alert is to pray. Be in constant communication with God, reading his word, praying his word, spending time going on a prayer walk, spending time alone meditating on his word. When you're in the car, when you're going for a walk, when you're at home with your family, prayer is a constant part of what you're doing because it keeps you alert to what is going on around you. And it allows you to understand with more depth what that armor is that is protecting you, leading you into a relationship with him. Then he says, and when this happens, when you are someone who is alert, when you are somebody who is in constant communication with the father and that relationship is growing, you find yourself being far less selfish, asking for ponies, and far more selfless, looking at the concerns of other people, which is why he says, as he finishes out verse 18, always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. This would have been much easier in Ephesus and house churches with 40 or 50 people than it is in a church with hundreds of people. But the point is the same nonetheless. God's people need to be concerned for God's people. We need to constantly be looking out for one another, looking at what the needs are. How can I pray for you? And then we actually pray. We don't use it as a conversation transition. We don't use it as a way to kill awkward moments. We engage because we care. And when you care, you listen well, and you actually bring the concerns to your heavenly father. Why? Because you already know what it's like to be in constant communication with him. So bringing concerns on behalf of other people is just a part of what you do as you continue to grow and you continue to pray. In other words, a church that's characterized by unity, that is working together as a church family that doesn't have hierarchy of importance, but we're all together in this thing and we're just following after Jesus and we understand the enemy that we're up against and we understand the battle that we're in and we understand the armor that we're wearing and we understand what it means to walk with God. A church that's united in that approach to living out, following after Jesus is a praying church, period. It's a church that prays together because it understands the enemy that they're up against. And it's centered on this truth. And here's my fear. I'm going to put this um, truth out there for you that I think is the culmination of Ephesians 6.18. And here's my fear. My fear is that it's going to sound so elementary to you that you just write it off and move on. You're already thinking about kickoff. You're already thinking about what's next. But the truth of Ephesians 6.18 is this. God loves spending time with you. He loves it. Do you actually believe it? Because many people say they believe it, but when you watch them live, I don't know that you're living a life that tells me you believe he actually likes spending time with you. That he enjoys when you wake up in the morning, like a good parent, he gets excited. Oh, they're awake. I want to spend time with them. And like a really good parent, their heart breaks every time we get distracted and we don't spend time with them. He loves spending time with you. Now, understand, I'm not saying he needs you. He doesn't need you, but he wants you. He wants to spend time with you. And how is it that you know when the people in your life want to be with you? I mean, if you're thinking about your relationship with just the people in your life, 
and you really want to believe that they really want to be with you, how do you know that they really want to be with you? It's because they'll go to drastic measures to get the privilege of being in your company. I mean, they'll do all kinds of things. And right early on in our dating relationships, you're like, I can't believe you did that. Like, you just, I just wanted to be with you. And the more comfortable we get oftentimes, the less we remember how important it is to do what is necessary to get to be with one another. When I was in college, I had a good friend. His name was Brent. And he was dating a girl at the time. Her name was Alicia. We all kind of uh, knew each other from where we grew up there in Florida. Brent and I were uh, roommates at Florida Christian College right near Disney World in Kissimmee. And his girlfriend was uh, at Johnson Bible College in Knoxville, Tennessee, where I had done my first two years of college before transferring down. And so Brent and I are roommates his freshman year, my junior year. And he talks to his girlfriend who's in Knoxville on like a Tuesday. I don't really remember the day of the week, but like on a Tuesday, he gets a call from her and they're talking and she's getting ready to have a really important day the next day. And he just hates the distance that's between them in Orlando and Knoxville. And so midday on Tuesday, he comes and says, hey, Rob, let's drive to Knoxville so I can surprise Alicia and be there the next day when she comes out of the dorm room and I'll be there. And he said, let's, because he didn't have a car. So... It was, a, it was a really powerful let's, right? And so after hearing him out and just this desire he had to be there with her, I was like, all right, I got friends that are still up there. Let's do it. We drove all night, right? The two of us listening to music, trying to stay awake. We got to Knoxville. She came out of the dorm. She saw him. It was this huge, awesome moment. And we stayed there for the day and we got in the car and we had to be back for class. So we drove from Knoxville back to the Orlando area, like not long after that. And I looked back and I was like, what were we thinking? That was so foolish. And yet they're married with five kids now. So it worked, (laughs) right? Drastic things just to spend time together. Look, God sent his innocent son to die a criminal's death so he could be with you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? He wants to be with you. And he went to extreme measures to show you how much he loves you. He just wants you to invite him. And he made the first move. And he wants you to invite him into the everyday stuff of your life. Because it's important to understand your enemy. It's important to understand the battle that you're in. But it's even more important to understand who you're walking with in the middle of that battle. So don't hold back. Talk to him. Talk to him. Spend time with him. You can even start by asking for a pony. He'll take it from there. And he'll begin to shape you and mold you and turn you into the person that you need to be to engage in the battle that you are in, whether you want to see it or not. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the reminder that you love us and that you want to spend time with us. We can complicate that with our knowledge. We can complicate that with imposing experiences that we have on you. We can complicate that by being deceived and putting our guard down and not staying alert. And just assuming that the blips on the radar of our spiritual life aren't that big of a deal when they are. God, would you forgive us for that? And in your grace, remind us once again that you made the first move. You went to the extreme measure. You want to be with us. Help us to remember that, to stay alert, and to invite you into the everyday stuff of our life. We ask you for this in Jesus' name.